Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And we pray that this morning we might hear you speaking to us as we consider your great love and mercy. May they not just be words that we hear, but words that sink deep into our hearts that we might respond to you with love and gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. The rather pained expression of Cliff Richard that you can see on the screen speaks of the anguish of being a public victim. He was innocent, but he was exposed to public humiliation. And we all know that the media today is relentless in its pursuit of sexual scandals. There's no room for judging to take place behind closed doors. But I wonder how we respond when we see the sins or the alleged sins of others exposed for everyone to see. It's very easy to be judgmental and to lose sight of our own need for grace and for mercy. The focus of our Bible reading today is a woman, possibly no more than a young girl, caught in the very act of adultery, a deed that's exposed in a very public and humiliating way. I wonder, as we read this story, how do we react? And more especially, who do we identify with? The woman standing empty-handed before Jesus? The Pharisees, apparently secure in the knowledge of their own religiosity, or the crowd watching from a distance. You may be asking, though, as you look at the text in your Bibles, which was on page 1073, why I'm actually preaching on this passage at all. Because the notes make it clear that it's omitted from the earliest and most reliable manuscripts of John's Gospel. If you look at the text, you can see that actually chapter 7, verse 52, is followed quite seamlessly by chapter 8, verse 12, without those verses being there. And in fact, no one seems quite sure where this story belongs. The language of it is more akin to the Gospel of Luke. Some people place it in Luke's Gospel. Others position it differently within the Gospel of John. But I don't think that means that it's a story we can dismiss. It is part of our scriptures. And above all, it rings true. The fact that the scribes and Pharisees try to trap Jesus with a question is consistent with other incidents that we find elsewhere in the Gospels. The immense wisdom with which Jesus replies to the dilemma reminds us of the Pharisees asking Jesus the question, 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? The Jesus I meet in this story is the same Jesus that I meet elsewhere in the Gospels. It's a story that brings us face to face with his great compassion and mercy towards sinners. Now, we might not be sure where the story belongs, but I don't think there's any doubt that it is a real incident in the life of Jesus and that we can learn from it today. So, this morning, I'd like you to begin just by stepping back from the story and imagining that you're one of the crowd listening to Jesus as the story unfolds. You watch the scribes and the Pharisees dragging the woman and making her stand in front of Jesus. She's in full view of everyone. I wonder how you feel. Shocked at what she's done? Disapproving? Perhaps you feel sorry for her. After all, everyone's going to know what she's done. Surely they could have brought her to Jesus privately. Except as you hear the Pharisees' words. Now, what do you say? You know, it's simply a trap to catch Jesus out. You've heard of his great compassion, his forgiveness of sin. But the Ten Commandments are clear. If Jesus lets her go, he'll be breaking the Jewish law. But if he condemns her to death, then he'll probably be in trouble with the Romans because they've forbidden everyone except themselves to administer the death penalty. And then a whisper goes round the crowd. Where's the man? After all, it's impossible to commit adultery in splendid isolation. He must be just as guilty as her. Perhaps he's even more guilty. She's been stitched up. The whisper becomes more insistent. It's a setup. The Pharisees want to catch Jesus out. They must have planned this. How can there be two witnesses to the very act of adultery without someone engineering the situation? And if they're following the Jewish law, then they should have tried to prevent the sin being committed in the first place. You feel the suspense around you increasing. Jesus has said absolutely nothing. And what's he writing on the ground? Is it a doodle? Is he writing one of the Jewish laws? Surely it can't be the case that he simply doesn't know what to say. But the Pharisees won't let it go. Their questions become even more insistent. The tension increases and everyone's eyes are on Jesus. And then he speaks 
If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Everyone's silent. You see, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees look at each other. They exchange furtive glances. Each one wonders what the other's going to do. Is someone going to move first? And then slowly the oldest one walks away, followed by another of the older members and another and another, until no one is left except the woman and Jesus. And there's a hush as everyone waits to find out what's going to happen next. And for the first time, Jesus speaks and he looks directly at the woman and he says some amazing words. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus shows incredible mercy. He offers the woman forgiveness, the opportunity for a new start. We don't actually know what her response was. But Jesus' words, go now and leave your life of sin, call for repentance. And as we hear them today... They call for a response from us too. Because no one can sit on the fence where Jesus is concerned. Ultimately, none of us can stand and listen to those words as a bystander. Because just as he offered the woman forgiveness and a new start, he makes the same offer to each one of us. Jonathan earlier taught us what he said was the most wonderful verse in the Bible. You ought to, by now, be able to say it by heart, hopefully. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And the next verse tells us that Jesus came, that we might be saved. It's the whole reason he came to earth. It speaks of love, mercy, forgiveness. But there is a condition in that verse. It requires belief in Jesus, whoever believes in him. We have to respond to his offer by turning to him, asking him to forgive us, placing our lives in his hands. The alternative is the verse we tend to forget. John chapter 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus doesn't judge the woman for the sin she's just committed. But ultimately, his very presence, our response to him, judges each one of us. So, 
If we can't be a bystander watching from a distance, then actually we're no different to that sinful woman who's cast on Jesus' mercy. I suspect that as she stood before him, she was aware only of her own sinfulness, of her tremendous need for mercy. Her sin was displayed for everyone to see, yet even she was not beyond the scope of Jesus' forgiveness. He came to call sinners, not the righteous. I wonder, though, if there's a tendency in each one of us, particularly, I suspect, those of us who've been Christians for a long time, to unintentionally slip into the kind of behaviour we see in the Pharisees in this story. Of course, we'd we'd never want to consciously identify as a Pharisee, but somehow we start comparing ourselves with others. A feeling of superiority, perhaps, begins to creep in. Maybe we're reading this story from the comfortable position of a happy marriage, and we find ourselves self-righteously tut-tutting as we read of the woman's behaviour. I remember working as a tax inspector and I used to have to travel to London every week for training and because we started early in the morning we'd travel up the night before and stay in a hotel and there were three of us who stayed in the same hotel, myself, a woman who I shared a room with to save some money and a man. And one night, I left my roommate downstairs in the bar with the man and went to bed early. And as the night progressed, I realised that her bed was empty, that she must be spending the night sleeping with the man that I'd left her downstairs with. And I remember lying there feeling that... I'd come up against the horrible ugliness of sin. I couldn't help thinking of the husband and wife who'd been betrayed, of the broken marriage vows. And yet, as I lay there and thought about it, I couldn't help feeling that what I was feeling was only a shadow of the way that God must feel when he looks at any kind of sin when he looks at my sin. Because sin isn't just the big things. It's there in our thoughts and our words. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount tells us that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It puts our sins into perspective, doesn't it? And I could equally turn those words round so that they refer to a woman and not a man. Jesus' words to the Pharisees, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Remind each one of us of the danger 
of feeling self-righteous, of the pitfalls of judging others. It's actually the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who end this encounter further away from Jesus than the sinful woman. Their sin is less obvious than the woman's, but it's patently there. They weren't concerned with upholding the law, but with catching Jesus out. Their motives were wrong. They'd used the woman as a victim in their scheme. They call her simply this woman. To Jesus, she's lost. She's in need of salvation. Of course, Jesus isn't saying that in every situation we should be without sin before we can pass judgment. If that was true, the British legal system would collapse. But he is saying, look at yourself first. Be aware of your own need for mercy and forgiveness. I wonder, though, if in each one of us there's a tendency at times for us to struggle with God's great mercy. I wonder if we share something of his tremendous heart for sinners or whether there's something in us that says, surely there should have been a consequence for this woman's sin. And it's probably that very thought that led the early editors of the Gospels to omit this story. They feared that it would encourage immorality. But Actually, Jesus is in no way condoning adultery. His words to the woman's accusers effectively say, go ahead, stoner. His last words, go now and leave your life of sin. Leave no doubt that adultery is a sin. There's a crystal clear call for repentance. But Jesus does have a heart for sinners. Do we? Do we show his love and compassion? Do we pray for those who in our eyes are furthest from him? I recently listened to an online biography of Henry Gerricker, a US Army chaplain who had the rather unenviable task of being chaplain to the top Nazis facing trial for their war crimes. And by the time they faced death, nine of them had given their life to to Christ. And yet, I suspect that part of us feels that actually it was a bit too easy for men facing death to repent and give their life to Christ. But God's mercy is unconditional. Think of the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Those who work all day in the heat of the sun are paid a denarius. But so are those who work for just one hour. Sometimes we put ourselves in the judgment seat. Maybe we think some people don't deserve God's mercy. Perhaps we think they're beyond the reach of it. Let's not forget, we're as much that sinful woman standing before Jesus as anyone else. And there was a consequence 
for that woman's sin and for ours. A consequence that sent Jesus to the cross to die for the sins of each one of us. Jesus' heart for sinners was so great that he gave his life. He calls each one of us to see ourselves not with the holier-than-thou eyes of the Pharisees, but as that sinful woman, totally dependent on his mercy and grace. He offered the woman forgiveness, freedom from condemnation. And he makes that same offer today. The woman didn't deserve his mercy, but neither do we. She hadn't earned it, nor can we. It was beyond her understanding, and it's beyond ours. But Jesus asks us simply to come empty-handed, to accept that he died for our sin. And as we do so, he will replace the fear of condemnation with the deep joy of salvation that he alone can give.